Welcome to The Joe Cohen Show. Join me as I share my experience with biohacking and invite top health experts to explore the latest technology, supplements, research, and resources for optimizing your body and brain. Hey, everyone. I'm really excited today to bring on Dr. Tyler Panzer, who is a PhD scientist trained in pharmacology, cancer, neuroscience, and inflammation research, who has had a lifelong passion for understanding how substances affect the body. While his scientific training spans well over a decade, his passion for genetics and personalized medicine started six years ago, and he's pursued his goals of personalizing vitamin supplement lifestyle regimes for each individual. He not only figures out exactly what your unique cells need, but also educates about which vitamin supplements and foods will clash with your unique biology. Using this approach, he believes that not only daily quality of life improves, but the risk for chronic diseases are greatly reduced. Dr. Panzer firmly believes that one's underlying genetic code dictates the body's need to thrive, and he's uh, driven to genetically optimize the human experience of life. So... I guess it makes sense why I'm bringing him on. We're both pretty passionate about personalized health and genetics, and I want to see how he approaches different things and would love to get his insights in various areas. So thanks for coming on, uh, Tyler. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be chatting. Awesome. So how did you get into this field to begin with? Yeah, so I remember it was roughly six years ago, kind of the first third or so of my PhD training that um, 23andMe became a thing that I was getting a lot more popular. And I figured, why not go ahead and do it? Um, sent in my sample. And a lot of the reports were more likely to think cilantro tastes like soap or more like, or your pee could smell if you ate asparagus. And I just thought that given all the information we had about our genes, that um, you should be getting a little more information from that. And I know it's come a long way since then, but initially starting out, it's kind of more just one-off, oddball, interesting facts. And then I looked at the raw data myself, started looking up what RSIDs were, looking into all of that, stumble upon my COMT mutation, explains a lot of my anxiety. That needed some specific support. A lot of histamine issues as well that underlied my uh, brain fog. And it turned out that um, just a lot of foods I was eating that are healthy, that are higher in histamine can really cause problems for me. And I got really interested in that and started doing that, you know, it's on the side, I was middle of the PhD for friends, family, you know, MTHFR here, there, those types of things, and just started making an impact for people just from that very crude, you know, primitive workflow. And my PhD training was being trained to make a new chemotherapy drug or immunotherapy drug, working with mouse models and stuff. And I decided to go all in the personalized medicine, work for a clinical genomics company as an analyst after the PhD. And they're sequencing cancer cells to figure out which drug makes sense to help the cancer. I just couldn't help but think it's ass backwards. You know, why don't we figure out what's going on with our healthy non-disease cells that can put them at risk for the diseases. Everyone talks about the MTHFR and mold or heavy metals. It's also linked to a lot of different types of cancers. So, um, so I decided to leave there, kind of do my own practice, utilizing the self-decode platform um, and haven't looked back since. And it's just really exciting field to be in space to be in because 
There's just data coming out all the time. You guys at Self Dakota are always putting out new reports that makes my job that much easier. Awesome. Uh, I'm really glad that you like the platform. I'm I'm kind of curious how you got to Self Dakota. Have you did you check out other platforms? Uh, like, what do you think of some of the other platforms you came across? I mean, I've got yeah. my own opinions. I'm just curious about yours. Yeah, I was looking. I was looking at a couple of different platforms, but the main thing that really drew me in was the polygenic risk scoring. Um, that was, I was looking for first and foremost, the best technology there is. And me being a scientist, like the self decode presentation is more, you know, catered towards layman, you know, with the colors and all those types of things. But with me looking at the underlying technology, that's what really mattered to me. Um, so, you know, taking into, I haven't seen any other company taking, some of them may take 10 or 15 genes into account, but we're, you're talking hundreds of thousands for, you know, a given ailment or deficiency. And it's just crazy, especially the blood markers I've noticed. Those usually have a very high number of genes in that polygenic risk scoring. And those are lining up with near perfect accuracy. Yep, this ALT is supposed to be high or up low ferritin. And that's what they had their entire lives. I, I actually, um, I, I talk about this also, and I find that it, it, I mean, there's some exceptions, but overall it lines up pretty well. And it's, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty damn good lineup in terms of what your predispositions and then your actual. And then when it doesn't line up, first of all, sometimes it won't line up simply because you can actually change these things, right? And so a lot of times I'll see that, you know, uh, at some point it was high and then I was able to change it through just doing a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, but I feel like it's it, it's useful to look at what your genetic predisposition is for a lab test. Like, are you more likely to be higher or lower? And then you, you should try to change it. Like my testosterone now is higher, but genetically I'm normal. And if I looked at it, you know, just over peer, like over history, it was always actually pretty typical. So, mm -hmm. and it was going down as you would expect for, for regular people until I said, Hey, wait, why is my testosterone going down? <laughs> I got to do something about this. And, you know, so kind of, there was a lot of things like that where I saw things were like, okay, I got to change this. Uh, same with my homocysteine, you know, your homocysteine, my homocysteine has a predisposition to be higher, but because I take B complex and methyl supplements, I bring it down. So I could see that there's that predisposition when I'm not taking those things, it goes up, but then when I am, it goes down. So I, I definitely, I, I really like that. I, I think it's a little underutilized and I'm glad that you're, you're using that feature and, and we're going to make a, a feature out of that in the future as well like really lining them up one by you so that you could see more clearly like, okay, genetic predisposition, actual result. Um, I think it's really think, interesting yeah. too how um, you can get a better idea what someone's true baseline is like. I know a lot in holistic space, a lot of people, I call it chasing the boogeyman because they don't know what this biotoxin is. Is it mold? Is it EBV? Is it Lyme disease? And while obviously, you know, if you have a certain marker that's high, at least you could tell, okay, that liver enzyme is genetically high. So it may, like, while you do want to address that and help bring that down to an appropriate range, at least you could tell, is that artificial externally being affected by poor health or is just the way it's hardwired? But that being said, like, even have it being hardwired to be elevated, you want to address that. But it really eliminates a lot of the, this is high because there's some infection or something going on that's really bad, when in reality, that could just be your cells just at their baseline. 
Right. I, I, that's exactly how I use it. It's like, it helps me know, okay, what is this? Am I supposed to be higher or lower? And if I'm supposed to be lower and it's higher, then why is that the case? Am I doing something to do that? Or is there some environmental trigger? Um, right. There's obviously your lab tests are going to very much interact with the environment in a whole bunch of different ways. Same with your genetics, but, uh, but it, it is useful to see polygenic scores for what your predisposition is for the, for each lab. Is there, are you supposed to be lower, higher, normal, whatever? Uh, so I agree that that's a very interesting thing, a uh, very interesting feature. One thing I, I actually quite found quite interesting is a lot of the things that are we actually have very different responses to supplements. <laughs> like a lot of the things that I do well with, you do poorly with, which, you know, kind of like if we were just like uh, regular gurus and, you know, just like, oh, follow me because this is this going to work for everybody. It would be like, oh, well, you're wrong because this I know this works. And you'd be like, no, you're wrong because this doesn't work for me. Yeah. <laughs> And instead, we're just like, oh, yeah, you've got that gene or whatever, and that makes sense for you, but I'm, I'm a different story. So I just find that, that dynamic quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, too, because we're also just going off the current data that we have, which I always tell people, too, with self-decode, what, over 80 million variants we have no idea what the vast majority of them do right now. You know, we have all the actual genotypes for 30,000 mutations on a single gene. We just, there's no real data to know what it does yet. But that's why it's so exciting to see as the field advances, it's going to be continue to be exponential growth and progress, especially with the advent of AI. Um, but yeah, and it's very interesting too, because it's clearly more than just a slow COMT or just a slow MAO or just a little bit lower of GABA because a lot of these mutations are fairly common, yet you can have people that, again, respond very, very differently. Um, like I've been using lithium ortate recently with really great success. I really love it. It helps me a lot for mood swings, staying more stable and stuff. Um, and based on some mutation, I think makes sense for that. Um, I have used that with other clients, but it kind of wipes them out because even though they're sensitive to adrenaline, it actually helps lower adrenaline. I don't know. Does their adrenaline really tank that much from it dose for dose, or is it rather that they may be a little more addicted to that adrenaline, if that makes sense. If you've been mm -hmm. used to living in fight or flight all the time, I work with people that calm them down with a couple different modalities and they say they feel like dissociated out of it or even like kind of stressed. And I come to realize for some of these individuals that their body is just so used to operate in that fight or flight to get them through the day, um, which is a whole other aspect of this stuff that you can't really foresee with the genetics. So while it's so useful, it eliminates so much guesswork, I'm starting to realize that, you know, I love using genetics as the framework, but there's so much other aspects that could be influencing that, the responsiveness of these uh, supplements. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I would uh, agree with that completely. So take us through your framework of, you know, a client comes to you, and how do you how do you start with them? What do you look for? Uh, yeah, how do you build out a regimen for them? Yeah, the first place I start with everyone is methylation. Um, so obviously MTHFR, MTR, MTRR, pretty much all the different major players um, in the methylation cycle. Because one thing I see that's a lot of people get wrong is that you know everyone 
out of all the genes in methylation, MTHFR gets 95% of the attention. You know, it's just one of at least a dozen genes. And people will just hop on a bunch of methylated B vitamins just because they have MTHFR. Well, you can have a CBS mutation that works quickly that lowers your base homocysteine. So I've seen people with MTHFR mutations that their homocysteine levels are actually pretty great. And then, or some, some, someone's could be good and they get put on a lot of these methyl B vitamins, all the betaine, the trimethylglycines to bring it down. And they end up taking, taking it down too far, which can cause a lot of issues as well from overmethylating. So um, I get a firm map to see um, where I think that their homocysteine levels would be. Um, I would try to get blood work initially to, to get, help read that out. Um, but looking at that, and then I kind of call it sort of an amoeba-like um, workflow, meaning I kind of take, I have a set of genes like the methylation, vitamin D I look at too, but then I'll kind of focus on certain other pathways based on what that client's ailments are. So it's not always the exact same set of genes, um, but I use the, I use self-decode as a framework to, you know, get a lot of this processivity out of the way and figure out what these risks are. Um, and then looking to figure out which would be the most easily exploitable mechanism by which to fix whatever symptoms they're having. Um, but at the same point, being a pharmacologist, and I'm starting to call myself a holistic pharmacologist. I haven't really seen anyone else, you know, go to the holistic space with this type of education because I see a lot of people too on supplements that may, one mechanism may serve them well, the other mechanism may not. Um, I've taken several female clients off of curcumin supplements because their hair's falling out. They're taking that, they're taking rutin, they're taking quercetin, all these polyphenols that chelate iron out of the body and they're doing these iron infusions, paying all this money and these practitioners don't know what's going on. And I'm like, it's, and of, and of course, of course, you know, nowadays they always have the crazy mumbo jumbo, triple strength, liposomal forms of everything nowadays. So you're not only getting, yes, you're getting much more anti-inflammatory effects. You're also going to get more iron chelation effects. You're also going to get more blockage of monoamine oxidase. So if other mechanisms aren't serving them well, I may need to find something that can help with inflammation that won't also be affecting the iron status. So um, that's something I'm very, very vocal about and always try to cross-reference because a lot of people come to me saying they're so sensitive to supplements um, because there's a lot of these, how many times have you seen on a curcumin bottle lowers iron? It's always antioxidant support, brain health, gut health, anti-inflammatory. Um, and the same thing goes for a lot of other supplements as well, like quercetin. Great for histamine, um, great for inflammation, but it's also a very potent MAO and COMT inhibitor that with like a 10-hour half-life. So people that have been anxious can't sleep. They're on high dose of dihydroquercetin, and I'm like, we need to find something that helps with your histamine that is an issue for you that won't also aggravate that adrenaline sensitivity that you have genetically. Interesting. So- you're looking at uh, uh, how many like specific genes or variants are you looking at specifically besides, I mean, so the reports are done as uh, we look at many thousands or sometimes millions of variants, and then you see the recommendations and then you see which variants sometimes can improve a certain recommendation. Uh, that's kind of how the, the reports are, are designed. It seems like you're also looking at specific variants as well. Like you have a list of specific variants as well. Yeah. So I, I have a list of certain ones that I like to check. And um, 
like the vitamin D one, I kind of built out my own like 20 snip. Um, you know, I can't see exactly what's on, you know, the back end of the self decode side of that. You know, sometimes they'll mention the specific genes or ISIDs for those suggestions. Um, but well, we tend, to, we actually almost always do uh, now. I mean, like all the, uh, all the reports should, unless they're trait reports, but they all should have like the snips that, like the most important snips that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's true. Yeah. The, yeah. No, I mean, not all of them. But yeah. The, the top ones. So those ones that you do see. Are those the ones that are weighted with the highest significance by the backend analysis or just the, those are just the ones that you actually have. Does that make sense? Well, they would be the ones you have, but like, the, I know what you're saying under the smiley face, whatever it'll have like a list of maybe, I don't know, 10 or 20 of them there. Yeah. 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 So, um, I mean, those are the ones that, uh, seem to have the most significance. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, yeah. So, I mean, I'm using that as a framework and then, um, you know, I'm always just looking up random snips here and there. I'll read a paper, look at that, add it to like a snip pack that I can have as a practitioner and then build it out from there over time. But it's one of those things that the more and more genes you're checking, the more and more time it takes, you know what I mean? So it's trying to have that balancing act by keeping it accessible while also being thorough. Right. So for practitioners, we have a good feature coming out where, I mean, you know, we try to keep the general app that it's like, something that everyday people are going to understand, yep. right? So if we just start putting a bunch of genes and SNPs, they're just going to be like, what's going on here, right? Yep. Um, whereas some practitioners, we find people like yourself, they do like doing the deep dive in those SNPs or like you're gathering certain information that, you know, our, that is not going to be in our report for whatever reason, right? Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to allow you the ability to create your own report for all the SNPs that you want. So you wow. can easily and, and put in whatever content you want so that you could easily, so you put in a SNP, this genotype means this, geno, this genotype means this, here's the recommendations, here's content. So you could basically build your own report and then easily just download that for your client. Do you want to hear about the one health hack that is sure to change your life? Okay, here it is. Subscribing to this podcast. 67% of listeners aren't following the show, so please don't forget to show your support by hitting the follow button now. You'll not only be supporting the show, but also investing in yourself and your health journey, all while helping to keep us ad-free. One of the things that we're doing is expanding the recommendations quite a lot. So this is, let's say, the recommendations feature, okay? And these things are actually prioritized. Um, now, uh, this is just prioritized based on everything if i select all and recommendations all now avoid cigarette smoke i mean it's interesting because i i i don't think everyone first of all not everyone is going to get this as number one um but it's interesting because it shows all my lab results that are out of optimal range and this and then all my genetic predispositions that it'll help with if i don't smoke for example now that's a simple one right but you could see there's quite a lot of genetic predispositions that uh, are made worse that if I smoked, like gut inflammation, homo high homocysteine, high op ApoB, which again, if you actually look at my lab results, they're historically higher, these things. Um, and then, you know, a bunch of the other ones that these are my other predispositions. 
but then if we look at something, we could look at something like curcumin, and it's going to be, or, or I could say, you could type in any kind of like an issue, but let's say if we type in a supplement, I this is how I like to use it sometimes. You could see which labs it's helping with. So my lipoprotein A is higher, and curcumin could help reduce that. And you could see gut inflammation, low mood, and increasing BDNF. Um, these are the two main reasons that I actually take curcumin, and it's very effective for that. So you could see how this actually does help. And this, and this is also one of the reasons I take it because of lipoprotein A. But, but the two main ones are, are the gut inflammation and the mood, right? So it, it improves my mood quite a lot and also helps with gut inflammation. And, you know, and so the, I think like, um, and then it shows you all the other benefits that I might not be at necessarily significantly higher risk for or anything or uh, sometimes even lower risk. But the point is, is that it helps with a bunch of, like it shows you what it helps with and, and what your risks are. And so I think like we're going to make this feature, like we've got the stuff in the database. We're expanding the database now, but we want to make it more like just so that it, it's, it's the feature is a little easier to use. But in general, I, I really like using this feature where I could just look at something whether it's like, uh, and you know, curcumin comes up pretty high here, but let's say L-carnitine comes up higher and you could see it's because it's actually helping with some labs that were out of the optimal range. And then also genetic predisposition and certain things that I might not have a predisposition for. So um, I actually think that, you know, if, if let's say you wanted to, uh, you could click on the category and get recommendations. And let's say somebody's got some brain problems or you know, you could go through the sleep problems or whatever. You could go through the recommendations and see, okay, let's see what I would recommend and let's see what are all the things that this can help with, right? And so a lot of the things that come up first is, is going to be things that are like exercise, let's say. And the reason is because exercise is actually going to have the most impact. So we're not going to put up some random supplement that is not going to have the same impact like exercise. But you could see something like, um, you know, 5-HTP here. I know you like that one a lot too, right? 5-HTP? Yeah. Yeah. And then you could see like uh, what it helps with, low mood, you know, anxiety. And, and I actually have higher risk for Parkinson's here. Um, and then... You know, uh, like pycnogenol, you could see what that helps with here, these predispositions. Uh, so we're, we're going to be making this like to be a, an easier to use feature. But I think the core actually is quite uh, significant because we're able to look at all your predispositions and show you what some good fits are for recommendations. And then you can like, <clears throat> as a practitioner, you can look at these and, you know, you could put emphasis on certain ones. But this is like a good way that you can look at, hey, let me let me let me see certain things here. What do you think of that? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, and I think that especially if you, there was a way to be able to add in recommendations, like if you want to recommend a certain type of B12 for someone rather than just B12, B12. Just rather than just B12, you know, so. Well, you can do that. So you can add from here, you can add things to a regimen. And. Um, 
let me see something. So oh, yeah, like fill so, in the blank, like write out whatever you want. Well, like, like let's say from here, you can add things to a regimen. Uh, so it would be like, let's say, um, okay, so 5-HTP or whatever, or I don't know, zinc, you could say, okay, so first it's already added. You could say it's already added to the action plan. Let's say something that wouldn't be added. I don't know. It'd be blueberries or something, right? You could just do add to action plan. And then you could just go to the action plan. But are you able to write out your own name for that or is just from the available list of recommendations? Uh, well, we're going to – I mean, so – let's say here's an example of just what i'm saying you could say you can add a note and and say zinc acetate oh okay i see adding that notes lets you add the specificity there yeah so and then when you download it it should include these notes in the pdf right so then you could number one set the details or you could just add a note here and you know, and, and I think like we're we're trying to be more specific, so that like like you said, it's a balancing act too. You know what I mean? Because the more the more specific you get, the more detailed you get. That can you know kind of distance laymen that just want to get a couple insight about the genes. You know what I mean? So it's definitely a fine line balancing act between well, trying we also, to. We can't get more detailed unless there's a clinical trial on it. So like you might say like, oh, we should. You know, vitamin B12, let's, um, you know. Well, that's a good, that, that, that's a good point too. Yeah, you know, the, the level of evidence. Like I'm one of those people, like I'll look at a mechanistic mouse study and be like, hey, that's commercially available. Someone could buy it already. I'll recommend it to somebody. But obviously that's different when you actually have the one through five evidence rankings for self-decode, you know? Yeah, I mean, the most that, that we can do, and this is something that I've recently uh, said we should do, but basically uh, until now, the minimum ranking has been, there has to be a double blind placebo controlled trial and there can have one, let's say one trial that is, says it works and one trial says it doesn't work. Cause then it's basically like, you Crap know, shoot. It, yeah, it, it's, it just, they kind of cancel each other out, but there are certain things that I realized that I really like that just don't have double blind placebo controlled trials. Mm -hmm. And I kind of don't want to leave them out completely, but I also understand that if it's not a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, then it, it, you know, just from an evidence perspective, it doesn't really mean much, to be honest, right? Um, so I just, like, I just said, like, let's do evidence zero for that. <laughs> let's put it there and put an evidence of zero, right? Yeah, that makes sense. And then just be clear that hey there's no double blind like this is not double blinded and 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 things like that and and i would also like to look it over and you know I, I, like i want to look over all those recommendations and make sure actually that like based on my knowledge and mega dosing experience that that actually makes sense um or just based on you know what i've know like do i actually think it's going to work but even so we have to use a standard that you know it's not joe standard or whatever, mm -hmm. like it has to be, and and we set that standard as double blind placebo controlled trial. And if it's a small one, then it'll be like an evidence of one. Um, but if it's not even double blind 
placebo controlled, then but but I still think we should include it sometimes. But it, we're just gonna put like zero. But if you're like, hey, I think we should use hydroxy B12 on this person, whatever. There's no clinical trial for that usually, right? Yeah, exactly. And so you're just going based on mechanistic studies. So I think that that's that is a, like I actually would do things more your way, but we can't do build that into. Oh, the absolutely, hundred percent for sure. And that's why I said, you know, I, I use self decode as a framework to let it just process so much more and to kind of layer on my own. I guess you could call it fringe. You know what I mean? I don't know. Like just kind of, you know, like it, that, that might have a well, negative connotation to it. But I would say more hypothesis exploratory. Stuff. Well, I would say more hypothesis stuff. Yeah. Um, that is like, you know, it, maybe it's probably true, but there's no double blind placebo controlled trials. Right. Yep. And so you're like going through it with your clients. Let's try this out. Let's try that out. Exactly. And that's kind of how I work with myself, right? And that's how I would want to, like, okay, let's try something out if, if there's not a high risk to it, right? But, um, yeah, as a, as a product, we have to be, I think we have to set that standard. Well, especially if you want this to yeah. go be going into actual, you know, doctor's offices as well. You know, you're going to have to make sure that's all sewed up and buttoned tight and, you know, like rock solid top to bottom, front to back. Right, absolutely. So. That's the thing is, uh, we we set that standard, but um, we're also I, I, there's certain things like sometimes in the past we would say something like exercise, even though there was evidence for multiple types of exercise, and so we're breaking that down more and saying you know you're still going to have just exercise, and then there's going to be different kinds of exercise that have clinical trials and whatnot. So we're trying we're breaking down all those recommendations. That should be done pretty soon. Um, it's almost done already. So when you upload new files, you're going to be seeing the, uh, you know, it, uh, different, like uh, more nuanced recommendations, actually. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So take us through. Um, so you're looking at some of the big picture stuff. You look at the risks and then you, you're going to look at some genes as well. Certain variants, right? Based on the client. Yep, exactly. And, you know, I like to tell people that, like, I advertise my deep dive can help with all a whole bunch of different, you know, ailments. But from my point of view, it's just thinking in like a pathways type, fun uh, like viewpoint with all this stuff. So, you know, I'm sure you experienced this too. You could have someone with IBS and then someone with anxiety, insomnia that have a lot of similar key mutated pathways, you know? So it's kind of, it always fascinates me how, why do certain people have, like most chronic diseases are, you know, inflammatory based. And then, you know, they could be stem from low vitamin D, low glutathione, poor methylation, all these different things. Why do some people get certain organ types affected versus other types? So that's something that's always really fascinated me because my main philosophy is figuring out what these most top mutated pathways are and because you can always only take so many supplements. There's only so right. many genes you can support. There will always be another gene you can support. Um, but from my experience, sticking to some that are tried and true and then some other ones based on, you know, the actual organ-specific reports that Self-Decode has, that's kind of how I'm approaching this. Um, but, yeah, again, the fact that people can have similar genes – with different types of ailments, it's just really uh, fascinating to me. But again, when you 
you know, all these mutations are present in all the cells. Yes, the epigenetics can change in different types of cells in the body, but that mutated gene, whenever it's expressed, will always be mutated across all of the bodies. So when you're fixing that, supporting that pathway, you're supporting that in all of the cells. And that's why I kind of have the um, thought process of fix the most mutated pathways and kind of let the cells do their own thing, you know, whatever they need more of, whatever they need less of. And kind of, that's my first line of approach. Um, then usually after a month or so, um, four to six weeks, get some blood work done, see how things are looking. Um, and, you know, being totally honest, usually from there, some, a lot of my clients don't really get follow-ups. They feel better or, you know, they'll do one follow-up and then kind of on their way. And I'm starting to realize it's really shitty for business. Um, but at the same point, um, it's been working really, really well, just trying to figure out. And again, so many people's issues were just getting them off of the wrong supplements. And that's something I've been working on a lot lately. Um, I really want to lead the forefront. I mean, think about it. You have physicians need to go to medical school residency to be able to prescribe medications, pharmacists too. There's no training whatsoever about any of these supplements and anyone, anyone can have a health practice with no experience about the pharmacology or how these things work. Just strictly read what they say off the bottle, which is what the makers of the supplements want you to read. And even I think a lot of these people that make the supplements, how many people that make curcumin supplements are aware it's a powerful iron chelator? I bet not a lot of them even know that. So I really want to try to help educate people about how these things work, because especially nowadays, I mean, what's a drug by definition? Anything that alters physiology. So by definition, these supplements are drugs, let alone nowadays. You have all, you know, the dihydroberberine, dihydroquercetin. You have all these modified forms of natural supplements that are 3,000% higher absorption rate. At what, where, where's the threshold here when we stop thinking of that as like an inert, low-key, you know, mildly effective supplement and like a drug, you know what I mean? By definition, they're the same, but where do you draw that line? How much do you boost up what nature intended us to have? before it's not considered a natural supplement. And the more concentrated these things get, the higher the chance for potential side effects and risks. Risks. So um, I really want to try to educate not just regular people, but also the practitioners to know these things. I think it's absolutely crazy that there's no training. I think anybody should be able to go into vitamin shop or wherever and order whatever supplement they want. I don't think that should be restricted. But I am starting to think now, if you are a health professional, giving your expert opinion on what supplement someone should take. I think you should have to take a, some sort of certification course. doesn't have to be, you know, a huge in-depth thing, but even everyone rips on conventional medicine doctors. How, what do they get? Like eight hours or so of nutrition experience training in the whole four years of medical school. Like why can't someone get eight hours of supplement training before they're allowed to use that in their practice? Right. No, I, that, that makes sense. Uh, one of the things you, you actually also reminded one of the things that we're going to be doing that's on the roadmap is also for every supplement, give, putting all the risks and negatives of that supplement. And that, what's interesting about that, that too is like the risks, I would think maybe just mechanisms would make more sense because think about it. One person's risk could be another person's exactly what they want. So if someone has, if someone has inflammation and they have hemochromat genetic hemochromatosis, Curcumin is exactly what they want, but if that person's also anemic, having iron issues, that's the last thing they want. So I would maybe phrase it more so as just mechanisms, iron chelator, because that may not be a risk for somebody.
that may right, be no, but just potential yeah. risks based on uh, yeah you could see like okay kirkman this chelates iron and and then you know maybe we could have like their predisposition for iron deficiency but a lot of yeah. times that i you know a lot of times it's not even it's it's more environmental based not even genetic often um I mean, there is definitely a genetic component, but a lot of times it's environmental. That ferritin one, the ferritin and anemia reports, those are two that I've seen be very, very uh, accurate. But of course, you're right. You know, a lot of people, I also see a lot of people that have anemia that don't have the increased risk. You know what I mean? But um, I definitely have seen that line up a lot. Yeah. So I I agree. They they, they have some, they they definitely have some validity, right? There's definitely something to it, but. Uh, the, the problem, like if somebody, if a woman has her period more often or whatever, you know, like, or if she has heavier bleeding, it's not necessarily going to look at the genes for iron or whatever. Right. Like, yeah. um, so, or if somebody's on a vegan diet, right. Uh, I know a lot of people that got a lot of the problems after vegan diets or vegetarian diets, and they're going to be lower on iron. Right. So it's very dependent on the diet. Um, you know, if you're on a, if you're on a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet, even if your predisposition is, you know, normal or whatever, you could still have low levels just because Absolutely. You're, you're doing an extreme diet, right? Definitely. Um, and, you know, that, that's kind of what I've yeah. seen. That's, that's definitely what I've seen as well. And again, there's so many things that either prevent iron absorption in the gut or chelate it out of the body that it's so hard to... um make sure you're cross-referencing everything you know what i mean because it's like i told you i'm very vocal about things that raise adrenaline unknowingly but a lot of these herbs a lot of practitioners use to help with infections and mold or this or that pretty much all of them raise adrenaline and i'll mention that but at the same point i don't real. i'm not aware of antivirals antimicrobials that hit that same mechanism that don't affect adrenaline. And a big issue, a big reason for that is because there's just not as much of an incentive to study all the mechanisms of these things. Like a lot of these papers, a lot of these herbs and stuff are very old studies because they're not really. What's hitting adrenaline? What's increasing adrenaline the, the significantly, let's say? I know oregano oil. I mean, I could pull up the list right here. There's a whole lot of different ones of them. Yeah, I mean, piperine. Rhodiola, berberine, fenugreek, cinnamon bark, astragalus, rosemary, marinda, olive leaf, resveratrol. Based on what I've seen, based on it's around. I I picked up the same thing you were saying. How um um we definitely respond very differently. You know what I mean? Because like seeing like taking if I take any amount of rhodiola, I'm feeling that the whole day, and I only have maybe. 200 milligrams of caffeine in the morning with my smoothie. So it's not even like I'm down in 600 megs of caffeine and then complaining about a little bit of an MAOI in there. Um, but I've seen people and the very interesting part is virtually all of these COMT or MAO inhibitors are also iron chelators are also SIP inhibitors. So there's a lot of familiar faces for possible contraindications. Like everyone talks about all the polyphenols, how they're so great, which they are. Um, but I'm a big fan of them more so in the natural levels in foods. Like I don't really tell people that, you know, oh, there's some polyphenols and blueberries. You should avoid them. You know, from my experience, it's pretty much always the, you know, 95% standardized polyphenol supplements that are going to be doing this. Um, but I am starting to know people do you think uh, are sensitive to this because 
I mean, yeah, it's it, it's interesting. Maybe I just have low epinephrine or adrenaline naturally. Could be that, or it could maybe be the lack of you know, it's not just how much gas you have, but how much brakes. So maybe the GABA system. I know my GABA system has some issues as well, so that'll be like twofold along with that. Yeah. So, um, but the majority of my clients I've noticed are sensitive to these things. And I think it's interesting when you think about it, that like, why, if let's just say, I think what, like 40% of people should have a slow COMT and nearly all of my clients do or double multiple low side that are slow MAO. Why and why so many do? Um, well, I think that's because if you think about it, if you have genetically higher adrenaline dopamine, you're going to be more inquisitive. You're more likely to overthink. You're more likely to care about your health and possibly obsess over your health. Um, so me be more worried about these things. Um, and like there's other mutations that I've seen that should be certain vitamin D conversion pathways that should be maybe 15% of the population and like 70% of my clients have it. I think because I'm artificially selecting for people, because if all these other doctors have failed them, conventional, holistic, and they come to me, I'm artificially selecting for people. Why didn't anything else work? Because it's more likely a genetic issue. And I'm usually the first person they worked with that looks at the genes at this level of scrutiny to find these things. So it's really interesting that, again, you could have such a higher rate within my practice because, again, you're artificially selecting for people that have more of these immune issues that they may need a certain form of a vitamin D metabolite. The regular vitamin D, they can't convert it all due to that CYP2R1 mutation. So they need to get a pre-metabolized form. I'm only aware of one brand developed that's over the counter for that, only sold in the US. So everyone else throughout the world doesn't even have access to this, but I see that be a very common mutation. Those are the people that take 10, 20,000, 30,000 I use of vitamin D their levels don't go up that much because they can't even mm. convert that into the form that circulates throughout the blood. Um, so, you know, the vitamin D mutate receptor mutations, those dictate your optimal levels, but which form you actually need, which step is the issue. Doctors will say, here's 10,000. I use your levels aren't going up. Here's 20,000, nothing else. Okay. That's it. And then people will say, well, it could be a vitamin, could be a magnesium deficiency. Well, Anytime I support anyone's vitamin D pathway, it's always with K2, boron, and magnesium. You know, always bits of that because what's the point in jacking up the main? You got to be making sure you have a surplus of cofactors there as well. Right. So are you checking also lab tests as well when with your clients? Yeah. So I, I do the lab testing. That's definitely something that I um, want to dive more into in the near future. But a lot of the lab work I take with a grain of salt too. Because think about TCN1 or two mutations. These are for the transport of B12 and folate through the blood into your cells. Like they've done studies that like lithium actually helps you transport these. It helps facilitate the transport of folate and B12 into cells. So they'll look at blood work. They'll give people lithium and their blood levels go down. But it's going down because more is getting inside of the cells, which is where you want it to blood be. Blood levels of what goes down? B12. B12 and folate. So people look at that's just what's in the blood. But when you have mutations and how you could transport these through your body into your cells, what's in the blood doesn't tell the full picture here. Now, obviously, I use it as a grain of salt. But like I mentioned, too, the vitamin D, they say the range in the U.S. is 30 to 100. Well, 
someone that's 32 versus 98 can feel radically different. And I think it's those receptor mutations that make your cells less sensitive. It doesn't matter what the blood levels are of things. It matters how much your cells are transcriptionally responding to that. So if your cells are hardwired to not respond, I, I always give everyone the example of like the weatherman. It'll be a high of 60 with a real feel of 40 after wind chill. That could be happening with someone's vitamin D levels. So I'll have people up upwards of 80, 90 nanograms per mil, and I'll have them sit there for a bit and see how they feel when they have six, seven converging vitamin D receptor mutations. And they go to their doctor. The doctor's like, listen, you're taking way too much. You're going to hurt yourself. They're kind of like, fuck you, man. My psoriasis is finally gone because now finally the blood levels may seem higher than normal, but what else are you supposed to do if the cells are hardwired to not respond as well to that? What are we going to do? Do CRISPR-Cas9 throughout the whole body and fix all the receptors? Like, no, that's not going to happen, you know? So um, I use the blood work, um, like homocysteine. I don't know why all the doctors aren't checking that all across the country. I think that's probably the biggest uh, blood marker, in my opinion. But take it all with a grain of salt. But I want to learn more about how to just read different ratios, those types of things. I don't go super, super crazy with the blood work, but some of those major things like vitamin D, inactive, ina inactive, inactive, homocysteine, iron, ferritin, ammonia. I've been learning a lot about recently too. high blood urea, nitrogen. Um, I see so many people having ammonia issues again, not due to dehydration, not due to poor liver health, but due to mutations and methylation genes that make their cells pump out more ammonia and more, more sulfur by baseline. So many people pop N-acetylcysteine for glutathione, but most people take NAC for the sulfur. But if you have genetically high sulfur, which I do, I don't really need that. I'll take the glycine. I feel so much better on glycine. And out of the two major building blocks, NAC and glycine, 95% of the conversation is all about NAC. When literally, like I actually had, uh, I, uh, had eggs this morning. Normally I have a smoothie in the morning. I had five eggs, whole eggs, and I could feel a little bit of histamine coming on um, because of that sulfur from there. So I have Molly Bedina to help clear that out, to help figure that out. A lot of people don't know that. You know, people think it could be an egg allergy. It could be whatever you're putting on the eggs, whether it's histamine, it could be the sulfur. Um, but the ammonia stuff's been really interesting to me as well because conventional medicine completely dismisses it. I work with Alzheimer's clients that have high ammonia sky high ammonia, which in a paper last year was linked to Alzheimer's disease progression. It's a neurotoxin and it's been riding at a 28 off the charts for the past 20 years of blood work. They just ignore it because they think it's just dehydration, you know, and it's crazy that that seems so groundbreaking when you just read a bit about it and it makes perfect sense and it's not that hard to grasp, but a lot of doctors don't have time to read and stuff. You know what I mean? Like they got to see right. so many patients. I always tell people, you know, I'm anti-establishment with conventional medicine, but we do need them. I got my teachings from them. I'll always be grateful for that. But you can't blame the doctors, blame the system. You know what I mean? They're just doing what they're told. And the vast majority of them do want to help people. They're just honestly misinformed by the training establishment. And that's the same thing with my PhD training for pharmacology. Nothing I learned about supplements or any of this. This is all self-taught. The basics, how the mechanisms work, those things I was taught professionally. But they were in the context of pharmaceutical medications, you know, find a new pharmaceutical, bombard one mechanism, and let's see if that helps most people. But that's why clinical trials fail so much, because you're trying to bombard one mechanism 
to fix multiple different disease variants or flavors based on people's mutations. Right. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, so the way I use uh, for the lab tests, I find it quite easy that the client can upload when they share it with you. The client can upload their lab. I've been tests. loving that. I've been using that as well. They could see you could see all their labs that are out of the optimal range. I love just being able to track on that dot plot and zoom out over time. So, you know, it's and that's another thing trying to push for at least biannual blood work because, you know, people come to work with me or you or whatever. And it's just, all right, I have bloods from two months ago. I'm like, well, that doesn't really tell me. It tells me something, but how do I know if that's where your normal baseline even is in good health? If you don't know where you're at in good health, how do we know that you're actually in bad health aside from you feeling like crap? It's very, I think it's a very good investment to do it at least once a year. Um, I mean, I, th I see you, it seems like every month you're getting something done, I'm right? I'm doing it every month now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how many, how many data points do you have on your South Dakota account? Like for, for, that, for labs. Depends for what, but like maybe 20 yeah. depends for yeah. what if things that you could get more regularly, like maybe LDL for me is like, it depends what I'm tracking more. I mean, also too, there's only so much that. There's only so much that you could focus on optimizing at one point. You know what I mean? Like people come to work with me and, you know, I want to fix all these different, and I'm like, let's just get the foundational, you know, major pathway that see how you're doing. You know, like day one, can we get me off all these medications? Stuff? I'm like, you know, hold your horses. We got to make sure that all your other markers are good. Let's make you feeling the best you can feel on these medications before we then try to delicately wean off and give you replacements you know what i mean because you can't just what kind of medications let's say are they on uh ssris antidepressants uh benzos uh sleeping medications um those are I'm definitely the main of ones those, of those meds no not at all i mean i personally think that at least i think 95 percent. i think i'm being generous of people that take them have absolutely no reason being on them if you feel better, it's just the way they prescribe drives me nuts too, because I'll work with people that have anxiety issues. They're on an SNRI. So it raises serotonin and norepinephrine. Um, but they have anxiety issues. And I asked them, was this the first medication you were put on? They're like, yeah. And I, I just can't help but think you're so you're, they have mutations to make them sensitive to adrenaline, whether it's slow COMT or MAO. And they're on a medication that raises noradrenaline. So why I just, it just blows my mind. Why not at least start with just an SSRI? You know, why do we have to go right out the gate raising noradrenaline, which is linked to anxiety? This poor person is taking a medication that sure. Okay. I could get behind stabilizing the mood with serotonin boosters, you know, but that sure we'll go with that. But why do you got to raise the norepinephrine too? And did you mention this to their doctor? Yeah. They didn't do anything about it. It's just, the lack of like actual thinking about what the medication is doing that's actually being done, you know, but I, out of all of them, I think probably the benzos are usually the work. Those are like some of the most wicked withdrawals ever. And that's something that needs to be done very, very carefully. Um, but yeah, the mood I medications think those drugs are terrible. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And they were, meant I'm, I'm actually not against drugs, uh, uh, you know, as opposed to a lot of people in the alternative health industry. Time and place, short-term stabilization, I think, is where it should be. And that's how those SSRIs, they were meant to be used for a couple of weeks or months. Let's just say you had tragic loss in the family to stabilize, uh, and then you're supposed no, to come so off it. 
Yeah, I'll tell you why I don't like SSRIs. I think tryptophan and 5-HTP are going to be way more effective yep. and natural and better, less side effects, have other benefits. Like, instead of just stopping, you know, inhibiting the increase, the, the you know, inhibiting the reuptake of serotonin, why don't you increase the supply of it? Right. Well, especially um, if that's their if the if they have mutations in the synthesis pathways. Yeah, the, the drug you're taking will raise serotonin. It won't help the melatonin side of that pathway as well. Right. You know, that's why a lot of these depression issues normally coincide with sleep issues as well. The SSRI won't really be helping you make more melatonin, but those precursors will. So couldn't agree more. Absolutely. I just had a um, uh, a client that I, I don't take on a lot of clients, but um. I just had a client that has like had a lot of anxiety, right? And and she didn't have a lot of anxiety before. And, you know, and so looking at some symptoms, just looking at, uh, you know, some information, it was quite clear that she was low on serotonin. Question is why, right? And then what do you do about it? Do you give, you know, like SSRIs, one, it would be what the conventional would give. But, you know, I'm looking at, okay, let's say tryptophan, 5-HTP, or any of the cofactors that are going to help produce you know, go from tryptophan to serotonin um one of those cofactors is iron so in my case i was low on methylfolate and niacin which are going to help uh, meaning if you're low on niacin your tryptophan is going to go towards creating niacin and the methylfolate is going to be a cofactor through bh4 mm-hmm. um so but the, the two main things are iron and bh4 so you might not either have enough bh4 by not enough methyl supplements, let's say, right? Mainly methylfolate. That was my issue. Or maybe not enough of the raw supply of tryptophan um, because of, you know, uh, a whole bunch of reasons, right? So you could have things that just take the tryptophan away, whether it's low niacin or some other things, some gut issues, uh, or it could be low iron. In her case, she was iron deficient. And that's something that I figured out. It's like, oh, you're low on iron. Like, I didn't realize that. You know, um, and, and she's like, yeah, you know, every time I take blood, I start to get dizzy and, and like, she was just describing a lot, like, I didn't even get her lab results yet. So it was kind of just the very initial thing. So I didn't actually see, but she's like, yeah, my ferritin is 20 and I'm usually (laughs) low on iron. And I'm like, well, I'm like, okay, you know, like I didn't get the lab results yet, but it just kind of came up through, uh, you know, just some initial discussions and I'm like, okay, well. That is going to be a significant reason. If you're low on iron, you, that directly causes anxiety through lower serotonin. Absolutely, Whereas and it, taking an SSRI is wouldn't be the right approach there, right? It, you're not it, you're not fixing exactly. the underlying issue of iron deficiency. Absolutely, and it's like I could even see, you know, if someone did have mutations in those certs, so in the reuptake proteins. Then maybe if you're really wanting to use SSRI, sure. You know, they have things like St. John's Ward as well. But again, I always use the term, they're throwing darts at a dartboard blindfolded. They're just guessing, hoping they hit the right mechanism. Um, you know, all these neurotransmitters, lack of GABA can also be linked to anxiety and depression. You know what I mean? Um, so it could have been that as well. It could be a combination of these things. That's usually what everyone is. You know, I like to give the analogy of, especially when it comes to brain chemistry, like neuroscience, neuropharmacology, that was my initial research interest. And that's literally how you change your perceived reality. Like these little chemicals in our brain make us feel how we feel in our reality. And I like to give the analogy of, we all have the same canvas and the colors to make a painting. 
Some people have a little more green. Let's just say green is serotonin. Some have a little less blue. Blue is GABA, you know? So everyone has, we all have the same colors there. It's just some people have a little more of this one, a little less of that one. Um, then you have the whole glutamate GABA axis, which is really interesting as well, considering those can be converted back and forth from each other. Um, that ties in a lot with ammonia as well. Like I've seen a lot of people get ammonia issues from L-glutamine supplementation because that could get converted into ammonia um, uh, and possibly glutamate as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I so tried it. Yeah, go ahead. I took a, I took a, a, you know, once once I got sick and so I was taking a lot of L-glutamine, which helps the immune system, so mm-hmm. it's good. But then I checked my ammonia and my ammonia was quite high. Yeah, it's actually, and that was the last time I checked my ammonia. Actually, uh, so I had like some kind of virus, whatever, and then I checked my ammonia. That's why it actually comes up higher ammonia. I just think just because I have a higher protein diet, but I want to check it again to see without. Like I was taking ten, fifteen grams of glutamine a day. That's so, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, not not in the grand scheme. I mean, me personally, I'm taking a little break from it now, but I usually do three or four grams of low dose each day. I was doing that long term and my ammonia was good, but I know they do like, they do like hundred grams of that, like multiple times a day in some studies, which is, I can't see how anyone could tolerate that with the ammonia, but the same point, I feel like, again, sometimes you got to deal with a potential negative side effect to help with the main issue. If that makes sense, you know, like if taking this certain herb, oregano oil is helping you with your, your infection, but you feel more anxious, if I don't have the answer to an antimicrobial that works that way, that doesn't raise adrenaline, then I could just help support your GABA system to kind of weather out the storm, you know? Right. How many supplements do you personally take a day? Um, I actually take not that many. Um, it's probably the lowest I've been taking. Um, I've been absolutely loving She Legit, and I feel like that just checks so many boxes across the board um, between the minerals, iron, phytochemicals. Um, but not, not too many. I mean, I'm doing, um, hydroxo, adeno B12 multivitamin with some methylfolate in the morning. Um, I'm taking the, uh, 25D that pre processed supplement I told you for the vitamin D, um, some boron in the morning, um, took it, taking a break from some gut stuff now. And then some stuff before the gym, agbutene sulfate. L-citrulline, a little bit of beta alanine. I like just getting them all, you know, I don't need it in a one container with a bunch of flavorings and dyes. You know, I'll just do that with some pink salt before I train. Um, have them all on their own. Who knows what's in, in all that other stuff. Um, and then the evenings I do CBD, magnesium, L3, and glycine. Um, and then a little bit of liquid melatonin right before bed. But I'm only doing maybe... 0.4 milligrams of that. I love melatonin. I think, I think vitamin D and melatonin are the two most wrongly demonized supplements. Um, and I think people take, I think people take, there is some really interesting data about high dose melatonin, which is very interesting, but a lot of people just take too much of it. And then they think that if they don't sleep just because the melatonin doesn't keep you knocked out all night, doesn't mean it's not working. If that makes sense. Cause that signals to the body that you're sleeping and helps make your body make glutathione regenerate NAD, all these types of things that is it really a good night's sleep or is it actually optimal melatonin signaling? Right. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, um, I take those and, and you just reminded me by the way that I'm actually one of those people that notices more NAC than glycine. <laughs> so, Interesting. 
yeah, like I've taken mega doses of glycine and we're talking like 25 grams. It's I noticed something, but not nothing too significant. Whereas 1200 milligrams of NAC, I'm going to notice like a significant effect and mostly positive. Yeah, it was interesting when I take NAC. It changes how my brain works. It's not in a particularly bad way. Like I don't have any negative depressive thoughts or anxious, anything like that. I just notice my brain just feels different. And again, it's not a bad thing. It's just different, but it's not a different that I really like. I guess if that makes sense. I like, it's like, it's like the, I guess it's like the, uh, uh, a bad type of neutral, if that makes sense. Right. Um, so, but yeah, the glycine, I noticed, you know, the calming effects, but I no, kind of more so noticed just feeling better overall the next day. I usually take it in the evenings there. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm How just such a night. How you take? Uh, usually, usually four to six grams. Um, sometimes I'll have a little bit more. Um, but um, yeah, I'm just such a night owl. By the time I get going in the morning and everything like i need something to just unplug at the end of the day otherwise i would never be ready to go to bed at my proper bedtime if i didn't have these things to kind of help you know not even that i'm anxious it's just one of those things like i like working i like being productive i want to do a lot of different i'm realizing now funny looking back now i'm realizing i definitely have some sort of undiagnosed adhd and then looking now at the self-decode reports that was my number one risk report it's one of those things that you know it's I guess high performing ADHD, you know what I mean? But right, like right. looking at a lot of, I've been, I've been seeing a lot of pages with just those different types of ADHD tendencies you think are personality traits. And a lot of them, I'm like, well, goddamn, like that's really sounds just like me. You know what I mean? But um, right. that's a whole other thing that makes <laughs> no fun. sense to me. You know, they medicate for ADHD with stimulants. High histamine is a huge causal factor of ADHD because it's hyperactivity you know that's an excitatory neurotransmitter yet they give people medications adderall ritalin vivance that bind histamine receptors so they raise histamine yes they're raising dopamine and adrenaline but they're raising histamine there was a study that gave uh adderall no ritalin or ritalin and zyrtec and ritalin and zyrtec performed better for children with adhd because it just you see how it doesn't make much sense. Like you're, part of that mechanism is raising histamine, which can lead to the ADHD. But again, you're just hoping and praying that jacking up these focus stress neurotransmitters are able to dial them in enough. I don't know. Nothing gets me madder than hearing about like seven-year-old children being put on Adderall and stuff because it's just absolutely mind-blowing. And it's frustrating for parents because parents, a lot of parents know it's not great for their kids, but their kids start getting straight A's. So, you know, you want your kid again to do a good school, but you know it's not the best for them, but you tell yourself this lie. Once they're done with high school, you'll get them off of it. Well, if they do all of high school with Adderall, good luck having them do anything in college without it. Right. Right. For sure. Um, yeah, I, I think that it's I don't know how I, I think it's it's better to there's there's other things that are definitely better to try first. Right. Yep. Uh, that's that's what I would say. I mean. And I don't think people are trying those things first. That's the problem. Not even aware, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, no, 100%. Uh, like pretty much you... all the things we mentioned. We The low iron, yeah. low vitamin D, poor methylation. Absolutely. Poor methylation is linked to higher histamine, especially in the brain. So they're all, you know, one in the same here. What were you going to say? Yeah. Um, how often do you find yourself, just out of curiosity, looking at self your self-decode results, personal results, like going back and checking something up? 
Yeah. So I go, I go back and recheck for my wife and I probably every, probably every six, six, eight weeks or so, I'll kind of do like a refresher and kind of look at that. And, mm. you know, you guys are just pumping out so many reports that there's, you know, always something to click generate all, you know what I mean? So <laughs> the one report that's really been interesting to me a lot lately has been the histidine report. Um, oh, I've been using okay. that. Yeah. Because Histidine, you know, it's used to make histamine, but it's also used to make metallothionine, the number one detoxification, heavy metal detoxification protein. So I would, you know, again, I don't have like hardcore statistics to back this, but small, small sample size, like a lot of people I've worked with that have heavy metal toxicity throughout their lives have this higher need for histidine. And I also have this theory that if you're histamine sensitive, and you're constantly releasing histamine when your mast cells or basophils, when they run out of histidine to make histamine, I think they could get stressed out and release a lot of these other inflammatory molecules. And I also think that perhaps maybe histamine route is the primary route. So if you need more histidine, maybe you'll shunt it away from making metallothionine or protecting your skin from UV radiation. And then it'll maybe shunt it towards histamine because that's a higher turnover rate. So nothing specifically to back that, but kind of this theory that I have, and it's counterintuitive that giving someone a histamine precursor can help with histamine and allergies, but that's what some literature has shown. And that's what I've seen. I always start people on a very low dose. I personally tried histidine, like tiny dose, 200 milligrams. And I felt like I had something I was allergic to, you know, I had that brain fog right away. I'm like, yep, not for me. I didn't have that uh, report for a higher need anyways. I figured I would try it anyways. But that histidine has been really, really uh, interesting. And I think a lot of people could be lacking that and causing other issues, even if you're getting it through meat. Like, I always wonder how much do these, how much do these mutations really increase? Like, how much more do you actually need? Obviously, that's going to vary person to person, you know, and that's, that's honestly a whole other ballpark figuring out you need 120% the daily value. You need 180%. You know what I mean? That's a whole huge project to tackle but that'd be so interesting to see rather than just knowing you need more having a better way to know what a good starting dose would be for someone but i'm always the i always start low and slow you know what i mean you could always take more over time right interesting okay so i think uh that's pretty much um you know i, I think we're we're over the time now but quite a, a lot of interesting stuff i like uh you know i like I like the way you approach this. I'm also equally passionate about precision health. And um, yeah, I mean, I really, I, I, I go back to self-decode more just to look at my lab test sometimes, like just to see, oh, what, what is this lab test? <laughs> like, what's the number here? Oh, well, I that's, I, I use, I use those resources so much because, you know, I, I know my way around blood work. I'm certain not like highly, highly trained in it, but being able to just click on a marker and have it pull up, you know, the article there with all the references and it's, it's basically like all just summarized so easily. I could become pretty much an expert on that with all the resources there, you know, having all the references right there is such a huge game changer. Right. One of the, Oh, so we're actually adding a feature there. Just FYI that um, we already added it. We just have to fill it in. Why each, why we put a reference range uh, as we did. So all the studies that show why the reference range is as it is. Uh, Cause right now it, could be a little difficult to see like why is this reference range as it is i noticed there's been differences between the normal ranges like on regular blood work and the self-decode and most of the self-decode ones you know they 
I agree with those ones more. So I'm very curious to see like some of the ones I've found for like vitamin D I've dove deep on what would be good for inactive and active. So I'm curious to see probably a lot of the same literature was pulled from that. So that'll be exciting to see. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to post all that literature. And once we fill that in, um, we're, we're just finishing to fill out the database more to make it more granular. So you can see more granular results. Uh, but then soon we're going to be filling in that information in. So that's going to be, you're, you're going to be able to see why the optimal range is for each thing. Dope. Awesome. All right. It's been great chatting, Tyler. And uh, yeah, I love, love what you're doing. Keep up the great work. And wh where can people find you? Yeah. So I'm at Dr. Tyler Pansner. Uh, no dot after the doctor on Instagram. I'm on Facebook as well. Uh, LinkedIn, um, Twitter, and what other platforms? And YouTube as well. I'm going to start be putting some more content out there. And then I have a website, www.drtylerpanzer.com. Um, thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to see where the future of the field goes. And I'm sure we'll both be right on that bleeding edge. So best of luck with everything. Awesome. Thanks. Enjoy. Have a great day. 67% of listeners aren't following the show. So please don't forget to show your support by hitting the follow button now. You'll not only be supporting the show, but also investing in yourself and your health journey, all while helping to keep us ad-free.